0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are discussing True Love, a story of English domestic life by Sarah E. Farrow. And uh, I got a funny story about Sarah E. Farrow. She is someone that I've had on my bonnets wish list for two years now. And I was trying to work up enough material on her. And I was sort of despairing at finding an expert when I just happened to meet Lydia Craig at a Jasna event. And in this really weird twist of fate, she tells me about this research that she's doing on a writer that no one's ever heard of before called Sarah E. Farrow. And I nearly burst into tears with excitement, which is always a really great way to make a first impression.
1: That's what I did when I met Jacqueline Wilson for the first time when I was 11. So I understand.
0: You understand? Yeah. Good. Thank you.
1: Celebrity is daunting, Lauren. <laughs> Now, you might remember Lydia Craig from our Northanger Abbey read along earlier this year. She is currently finishing up her PhD in the 19th Century Studies programme at Loyola University Chicago and is writing a dissertation on the subject of social climbers in Victorian novels and culture. Lydia serves as a co chair of the Dickens Society Communications Committee and is a founding member of the Loyola University Chicago Victorian Society. And she has published articles on various
0: topics in Dickens and Bronte studies. You're gonna have to tell me everything you know about Sarah Farrow. Oh
2: my goodness, how much time do you have? I have all the time. Well the first thing is her name is not Sarah Farrow, <gasps> it is Sarah E Farrow. Oh she my was gosh. Very
0: insistent on this. What does the um, E stand for?
2: We don't know. Oh. So like most of you, um, a few years ago, you would have seen the news articles about the discovery of Sarah Eupharo by um, Gretchen uh, Holbert Gerzina mm-hmm. And I hope I'm saying that right. I've <laughs> never met her in person. But um, so has done a lot of work on Frances Hodgson Burnett and other authors in the 19th century, but she's most known for her, her studies of um, Black Victorians. Mm-hmm. So she's written several books on this and it's been very useful to me in my own work because so many of my students want to know, you know, what kind of people were writing and instead of being able to just be like, oh, it was all white. I'm like, actually, (laughs) there was a lot going on for centuries in Britain and here you go. Mm -hmm. Um, So that and books like White Moogles have been very useful to me. But so she found when she was doing research in British periodicals that Sarah a pharaoh had written a novel called True Love that was um, published in 1891. So it's True Love, A Tale of English Domestic Life. And it involves all white European characters, um, no people of color mm-hmm. whatsoever. Basically, this girl, um, Janie, kind of is her family's slave in the sense that she works really hard for them. Her mother is very cruel. Her sister is... A very sickly girl, Mary Ann, who gets a fever. And then Janie catches it from her and dies before she can marry her suitor, Charles Taylor. And there's mm-hmm. another subplot that involves two people having a misunderstanding and eventually getting together. Um, it's a first novel, you know. Sure. <laughs> it's never going to win any awards. But it, it's, um, I think it left a lot of us wanting to know more. Mm-hmm. And Gerthine had said at the time that she thought that Sarah was forgotten because the book doesn't deal with what you would expect people of color to write about um, back then. And also it was kind of refreshing, I think, that an author from the time period who was not white would write about something just because she wanted to, not because it needed to be about race. Right. Um, and I've always noticed in that in the 19th century, there don't seem to be a lot of things written by people of color after slavery uh, is abolished. And it's almost like people don't want to hear from them.
0: Because,
2: mm-hmm. um, you know, what else do you know <laughs> to
0: write about besides the issue of slavery and racial injustice?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's that. I think that but, actually, <laughs> I, can I say, as a black author today, that does apply still within publishing. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll pitch something and. Um, I will hear an editor pitch back at me. well, can we can we do something about a woman of color? Can we do something about and which is right. great. But it's also like I can write about things outside of race. Right.
2: Well, as someone who isn't of color, I don't take a firm stand on that, but it's yeah. just something I've noticed, you know, totally because there is actually a lot written in the eighteenth century, well, not a lot, but you know, there are books written by people of color that are very popular and and sell very well. Uh, and there are very few in Britain in the 19th century so mm-hmm. I just always wondered why that was the case yeah. because you expect it you know to continue but instead it doesn't seem to be um, it, it didn't make sense to me until I studied the history of Jamaica and I realized how Britain throughout the 19th century was so keen on keeping Jamaicans from entering public life and mm-hmm. having equal rights and publishing and you know so I think it was a very active, um, decision to bar them from publication. So Mm -hmm. it's not until the turn of the century that you get a Jamaican literature. So just some random thoughts that I haven't fully substantiated. But so anyway, when I started reading about Sarah, it was because I was doing a project with my students where they took Wikipedia pages by obscure authors. So they had to be obscure because they were lower class white males or lower class white females or lower class people of color, both sexes. And they had to do research in Ancestry.com or Ancestry Library, um, Google Books, Mm -hmm. which you can search in a 19th century filter. Okay. So you only get results from between dates, which is perfect because if you're looking for something in the 19th century, you don't want to go through all the 20th and 21st century results. Mm -hmm. So it shows you exactly what people would have been reading. Um, So they had to do that. And then they had to do... Um, several databases that were for periodicals, you know, like 19th century UK periodicals and US newspapers. So my student who did Sarah E. Farrow, who I recommended, Mm -hmm. um, she couldn't find much, which I understood. So what I would do is go behind them and do the same searches they did and see if I could find results and then go and edit their Wikipedia page. So some of them actually like quadrupled the size of the original page mm-hmm. with what they found. It was really cool. So I go through and I go to Google Books and I enter Sarah E. Farrow. And this result pops up. It's a legal case. So I went, okay. And I look at the OCR and it says Sarah E. Farbo. So I'm like, well, that's a false result. But I clicked on it anyway and saw that the OCR had been wrong and it was Sarah E. Faro. So I look at it and it's a legal case from... 1887 and we're talking like second third round legal case mm-hmm. so it's been going on probably since 1883 and Sarah E. Fair was suing Frank Franklin Parmalee because of a buggy accident that she was in oh god where she was she was thrown out of a buggy and severely injured she was in downtown Chicago at the corner of Adams and Clark streets and an omnibus belonging to his company hit her So she'd won damages of multiple thousands in the two previous court cases. In this court case, the judge is refusing to do it because he's claiming that she's somewhat responsible for her injury. So I thought, could this be Sarah? Right. And I had no proof. So I went to the periodicals first, and I did searches in um, Gale primary sources um, and several other websites that have, you know, this kind of thing. And not only did I find more ads for her book, but I found out it was Sarah because the newspapers were mentioning that she was black or that she was colored Mm -hmm. and providing more information about the accident. So I I was pretty sure it was her. And then I sent off actually a few months ago to the uh, Cook County clerk's office. And I said, can I have all of the files on this case? Um, and I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to get. So it was 22 Illinois 467. That's the name of the case. And I got this gigantic package back with eyewitness information of sitting inside with the Pharaohs and talking to them and sitting in their kitchen and having all the family be there mentioned by name. And, uh, details of the first two cases, details of basically what I believe was Parmalee's attempts to buy witnesses to testify against her third round. Um, he was one of the most powerful men in Chicago. I mean, think Trump. He owned a a monopoly on anything to do with rail, rape. Well, I would say rail, um, road transport. So in other words, he's taking all the passengers to the train and back in his cabs. Um, they're actually still operational today under a different name and using taxis. Really? Yes. Uh, so he, he made a lot of money and was uh, very powerful and uh, had had many court cases before where he had d- deliberately destroyed evidence and gotten away with it because he had incredible political connections. Um, he's actually considered to be mayor at one point. This sounds very so, Chicago. It's very Chicago and she goes up against, you know, one of the most powerful men in the entire country at the time who was a symbol of, you know, the the self-made man. And, you know, she seems not to have won the case ultimately Mm -hmm. uh, because of this. But the first two times the jury had found in her favor and then unfortunately the witnesses who were called seem to have been African-Americans from her area who May have been bribed to present. Um, many of them, I did some research, and they had worked for him, or, oh. or yeah. And he has he had a pattern in previous court cases of having employees testify in his behalf. Great. So there's a lot going on with that. Um, but I also did research into her ancestry and found where her parents are buried, where two other sisters we didn't know about are buried. Um, one of them had died in. 1870 unexpectedly and there was a carriage procession to graceland cemetery which you might have noticed is um kind of near the belmont area oh yeah he used
0: to live around there
2: yep so i i got to go and look at her grave and the really weird thing is that mary's grave her older her her two years younger sister who died she died at 18 years old and she's buried there but her grave is eyesight like Maybe 200 feet away from Parmalee's grave. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, it's this gigantic grave. And so just being there and like standing on, you know, like right near her grave, which is unmarked, all of them are. And then seeing this huge monument, it's just very profound. But uh, so Sarah, uh, while she was recovering from this accident, I think she wrote her novel.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay.
2: yeah. And so the reason I think this is that she refers to it in her novel. Uh, so there's the sister, Mary Ann, who's complaining to Janie. Another interesting thing is the sister who died, who was ill, was named Mary Jane. Okay. So she's working out some stuff here. You know, now she's the invalid and now she's maybe revisiting her attitude towards, you know, her sister, you know, her sister's attitude towards her. Mm-hmm. So Janie tells Mary Ann, I think you're sick. And Marianne, who's always sickly, says, why should the fever have come to me? She rejoined in a tone of rebellion. Why was I thrown from my buggy last year and my back sprained? Such unpleasant things do come to us. And then the sister says, to sprain your back is nothing compared to this fever. You got well again. And we will get you well if you'll be quiet and reasonable. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that's interesting. Very. Interesting. Another, thing, another thing I found out was when she was a child, she lived on what is now South Plymouth Court, mm-hmm. which is right behind Dearborn. Back then it was Third Avenue. And she basically lived on the street behind Printer's Row. Okay. So she grew up in the shadow of the printing trade. Mm-hmm. And her publishers were on that street. So, I mean, she's kind of grown up around that. It's not maybe as terrifying to get published as it might be for somebody who didn't know anything about where the, the offices were or right. who were the main publishers. Um, so I've also found out where she and her sisters went to high school, so I'm still doing research in that. Um, what happened to her after the trial, if you're interested? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So one of the newspaper articles is an interview with her in which she mentions that she wants to, um, be a journalist and an interesting fact is that Ida B. Wells had sued The railway for kicking her off a train Mm -hmm. the same month of Sarah's accident. And it was reported in a lot of the African American newspapers in the region at the time, though this is before the Chicago Defender was published. So Sarah filed in Cook County courts about two weeks after that because at first Wells had won the first cases. So I think it started her on this path of interest in Wells, who later moved to Chicago around the time Sarah published her novel Mm -hmm. and was involved with Douglas when he came to the city in the 90s for the the sort of World's Fair thing they were doing there, the Columbian Exposition, Mm -hmm. at which Sarah's book was exhibited, though she was not allowed to attend because she was black. So... um, I think she wanted to be a journalist because Wells had just published an expose of the lynchings that were occurring at the time. Mm -hmm. And she sees a future for African-American women in the world of journalism. She knows how to write. She's a published author. So she's, she's primed to do it. And she was writing a second novel. She was, she was. That's what she said. The problem is her mother died very abruptly. And was buried. And I think that made it where Sarah had a really hard time. You know, she's having to take care of her two younger sisters. Right. She's got a father who is also probably sickly. So then her father transfers all of his property, which was about, it was worth about $4,000 to Sarah. And uh, then he died. Mm. So Sarah's just, you know, it's her two siblings. And I found, I've also, I found two additional and uh, two additional census records on the family. one from 1870s, so you can see the extra sisters. And then one from 1900, and you see Sarah and her two sisters by themselves still living on Allen, okay, which was their second house. And she's working as a school teacher, her middle sister's doing things with wool, and her younger sister, Amy is a, school- is a music teacher. And then, you don't find any more records of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Amy died about a year after that. And Sarah had to go back to court because the bank was trying to foreclose on her property. So she hired a lawyer who who was very helpful, tried to defend her. But unfortunately, the office that was handling this whole process was the office of John A. Lynn, who was later uh, arrested and imprisoned for embezzlement. Oh, great. And so, because she couldn't pay a $5 fee, they basically took her entire property, even though it was only mortgaged to one-tenth. And the lawyer was so pissed off about it that he wrote to the newspaper later a full account of this and mentions, you know, there was a Negro named John Farrow, and this is what happened to his daughters. Mm -hmm. It's just insane, you know, that this would be that, um, you know, it's in the newspapers, all you have to do is find it. Yeah. But... So I know that the second sister, Ella, became, she started working with the poor in later years and she worked with Quinn Chapel. You might've heard about, you know, one of the oldest African-American churches in the nation mm. here in Chicago. And she wrote for the Chicago Defender every now and then urging people to take care of the poor in their community. She died in eight, I think it was 1936. Okay. And she's buried on the South side where she had a house. So I'm hoping that Sarah and she moved to the South side and stayed there right the problem I'm running into is that I can't find anything on Sarah after this point Mm -hmm. people assume she lived until the 1930s because she was honored and there was a photograph of her that we don't have anymore that was in this exhibition but we don't know what happened to her because there's no death records there's nothing and I'm thinking she may have gotten married Mm -hmm. which would make but I mean, the problem is <laughs> the great migrations happening around this time. And suddenly there's like a thousand million people named
0: Sarah who are black. Right, <laughs> right. Like, ah! So now you're like, how, how do I right. find you, Sarah?
2: Right, right. It's, it's really frustrating. So I'm having to do a lot of work in archives, not trying to locate um, what happened. It's easier to go through her sister because her name is Elvira. I mean, how many okay, times perfect. do you Yeah. Exactly. That? So that's what I'm working on right now is trying to find out once and for all what happened. Um, to Sarah and where she's buried. So I need that. So that's the next step is, you know, find out like trace Ella's life and hope that it leads me to Sarah. Cause they're all each other has at this point. Right. Out of a family of, you know, five children. Uh-huh. So that's the hope. But I mean, I wish everyone did a project like this because there are no sources. It's so hard to find anything. Mm-hmm. No one cares. Right. Um, and then it also shows you how hard it was to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you were black in mm-hmm. Chicago at this time. Um, so I'm hoping it will be a useful thing for scholars to enlarge upon and to do in their own resources, um, you know, find things that I can't.
0: It's got to be so exciting though, too. Anytime you find <laughs> anything, it has to be I <laughs> such mean, there times it,
2: Oh yeah. When I found the 1900 census record it was incredible I was dancing around the room screaming and the best part was that Sarah has very cunningly shaved a bunch of years off her age which was why I couldn't find her in the first place. I'm just like you are so cunning um but yeah you know suddenly she's like I forget the exact year but instead of being born in 1959 she's like oh sorry 1859 she's like oh yeah I was born in 1863 hmm. like, no you weren't is this around the time that she got
0: married perhaps possibly yeah.
2: What I was thinking, because this would have been probably about a year or two out from when she did. The problem is a lot of the census records from 1910, I think, um, were destroyed in a fire in the 1920s. Okay. So um, not all of them were, but the government made the decision to destroy mm-hmm. the rest of them. And that was the first census in which people asked more questions about race and background and education. Mm. Um, so it would be a lot easier to find her if we had those records, but we don't. So... I'm relying a lot on African-American records, you know, church records. Mm -hmm. Um, I made the mistake at first of thinking that she and her family had stayed with Quinn Chapel in the middle of of her first move from Chicago and um, her sister's involvement as an adult. And I actually think that they were going to another church called Allen Church um, that was on their street because they lived right next door to the pastor. (laughs) I don't see how you can avoid going to a church like that. Um, In that very small, you know, 20 family community they set up in Avondale after the Chicago fire. So I'm thinking that's kind of the direction in which I'm going to have to start focusing.
0: You're a detective now. I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're doing the work. This is reminding me quite a bit of our Francis Harper episode. Now, what sort of things are you considering when you dive back into the archives for research? I would say race, class, and education, and I think you mm-hmm. do have to always consider them together. You know, it's that whole
2: intersectionality thing, but in yeah. a different way. Um, in a way that maybe Crenshaw didn't expect to have it applied, but in Sarah's case, you know, she's staying at home. She's not. She's she's also gotten the benefit of a high school education. Right. Chicago schools weren't um, separated by race, though some people tried to have that happen. <laughs> the, the ultimate solution was just to defund education in certain areas so that mm-hmm. people in the south for example wouldn't have as good of an education. Sarah was in the window before that happened and she and her sister both went to award winning high schools. Um and so her father is working his ass off as a butcher. I mean he he worked as a whitewasher. He advertised in all the newspapers. They used the newspapers. The whole family did many times for different reasons. And She was only able to write this novel because of his labor. Right.
0: Um,
2: I found a very interesting census record that fits her parents' ages, their first names, and where they're from. The only census record that does this. This is from, I think, 1850. Um, But it's for John and Jane Lannis. And they're in Chicago. And he's working as a laboring guy. You know, He's a, a laborer. I think they changed their name to Pharaoh okay. for a, f- a fresh start. I think that's why it's, I can't find anything on Pharaohs before this point. Um, she was from Palmyra, uh, Missouri. And her name, Sarah's mother's name was Jane and also Jemima. Okay. So on some of the census records, she's Jemima as well. But um, she and John made this home and they made fiscally responsible decisions and they saved money and they bought property because they knew how important that was and they made their children get an education mm. and supported them through everything they did. And if Sarah hadn't had that, Oh, well, you see what happened when her parents were gone. She wasn't able to continue right. as far as we know with that kind of thing. So I think it's a good look at how people pull themselves out of, you know, obscurity. Mm-hmm. It's on
0: the backs of previous generations who were
2: dealing with things
0: themselves. Absolutely. All the writers we talk about, too, on this show, I feel like we talk about their window.
2: Right. Yeah. When are they
0: able to create,
2: you know? Yeah. I know. I mean, Gaskell, do you think she would have been able to publish with all of her children if she hadn't had some child care? People yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. And what a Saint William was.
2: Oh, I know. And,
1: and Cassandra with, with Jane. And we are back. Lauren, I too lived on Printer's Row in Chicago. I know. Yeah.
0: What a blast. It's great. (laughs) What a
1: blast of the old proverbial that was. (laughs) (laughs) I do like genuinely wish that we were both in Chicago so that we could just like go and have a look at all of the Sarah E. Farrow sites and we could take little like bonnets at dawn blue
0: plaques with us and just stick them up everywhere. Oh my gosh. I mean, honestly... I think that we should create some sort of blue plaque sticker and then it like it has a space, you know, to write in the name of a forgotten or underappreciated woman writer. And then we can just take a road trip all around the country and like stick them up all over. That would be great. We should do that. No one steal that idea. We're going to do
1: it. No, we're going to do it. Maybe people could like we could post them to people to stick them up Mm -hmm. in places we can't go to. Yes yeah Mm, and then we can build our interactive map website for underrepresented women writers remember when we had that idea i would love to do that someone hit me up if you have like a grant or something i don't know we're doing it money so i really loved when lydia mentioned how particular Farrow was about that middle initial because when i write i always always Always, always include my middle initial, and have felt strongly about it, even in my fifteen-year-old Harry Potter fan fiction days, and I still do. <laughs> but I don't use it on the podcast, and I don't use it at work, even though my name is appearing in print journals, like, like inconsistent, Hannah. multiple times a month. I know I'm inconsistent. <laughs> I think it's like an identity thing. So it's like my identity as a writer. So I really related to it, and then. Apparently I'm getting married next year, but Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens. But apparently, and we keep having these chats about like, who's going to take whose name if either of us does, but then I kind of like the idea of taking Sam's name. So then I have even more of an obscure identity (laughs) and then I'll just have this other, I'll be this whole other person. And that's gonna be so annoying when scholars are like trying to track me down and they'll be like, stop changing your name, and then I can just like change my age, just like Faro did as well.
0: <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up about the married name, because we're going to get into that a little later on this season. So some foreshadowing action there. Everything's connected.
1: It's like mm-hmm. we research the show and plan things. This year especially, honestly. (laughs) It's so crazy to me that we do not know when Pharaoh died or if she got married or where she's buried because it's not something we ever come across with our white authors, Mm -hmm. is it? True. Like, even when they're not famous within their own lifetime, and I think that speaks so much to the value of the work that Lydia is doing and why more work needs to be done to recover the works and biographical details of authors of color because though the puzzle pieces are going missing every day they're being eaten by the cat or vacuumed or swept under the sofa or toddlers put them in their nappy you know like we've got to get the pieces (laughs) they're
0: getting lost and it's really cool because i also um you know chat with lydia every once in a while, and I get to see, like, what new information, mm-hmm. like, she's getting in. Like, she's, you know, requesting court records and going through all kinds of insane documents. She's just, like, a little literary detective. And it's it's crazy to see up close and, like, how long this work takes. Again, a little foreshadowing action, because we're going to get into this a little bit bit more later on. So um, one of the reasons why we still have a physical copy of True Love is because it was included in an exhibition that featured women writers from Illinois in the 1893 World's Fair. And there is still a copy at Harold Washington Library. So to take you back to 1893, Chicago was something of a literary powerhouse, Um, After the Great Fire in 1871, Chicago Central Library began aggressively collecting and amassed one of the largest collections in the country. And um, on top of that, there were 50 publishers and 29 daily newspapers in the city. And there was loads of like literary clubs and ladies literary societies. So, yeah, this town was a readin' like crazy. Now, these literary societies were called upon to submit titles specifically written by women from Illinois for consideration for an exhibit that featured 58 women writers. And that's 58 potential episodes of Bonnet's at Dawn right there. I know. I would love to be a literary detective and do a whole season on just recovery. Mm. Sounds fascinating to me, guys. But in this instance, Bernice E. Gallagher has actually beat us to the punch with her article entitled Illinois Women's Novels at the Women's Building Library, which summarizes all of the books from this exhibition. And it's a really interesting overview of what women were interested in reading in the 19th century and um, what they were writing. Now, most of the books are romances. And they are written by and aimed towards middle-class women. And temperance, charity, and work are definitely big, big themes and reoccurring issues. Quote from the article. Many Illinois writers acknowledge that the issue of marriage versus career was particularly troubling for middle-class women. Several admit that it was sometimes necessary to choose between marriage and meaningful work in the public realm. For most heroines, career and marriage are mutually exclusive terms. A career woman's intellect and accomplishments are admired, but she runs the risk of never being fully and freely received by polite society, nor married by the swells of sweldom. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> that's that's a sentence. <laughs> it's so childish that that made me laugh. The swells of sweldom. The heroine of Constance Winter's Choice from 1879 makes speech after lengthy speech about why she should continue her successful career as an actress and then suddenly in the last chapter gives up her career at the request of her husband.
1: Another interesting quote from this says the Illinois women authors wrote romances, but at the same time, many cautioned readers to be aware of being overly romantic and filling their heads with unreal fancies about love and marriage. Many writers wanted to believe in romantic ideals, but others were unable to ignore the reality that property rights and the demands of the capitalist society were increasingly and adversely affecting the personal relationships between middle-class men and women. Earl O'Neill, an outspoken young woman who appears in Amour, asks... How much longer must women be held in such industrial, legal, and social bondage that the usual methods suggested by society for a young woman's relief?
0: Hashtag wretched bondage. Just a just a real theme.
1: Wretched bondage is snappier than industrial, legal, and social bondage. (laughs) That's a bad edit right there. That like a bonnets at dawn edit, not like it's a good edit. A good, bad edit. edit. Yeah. There you go.
0: <laughs> so I think it's interesting that in the intro to True Love, Sarah E. Farrow said that she tried to make the plot exciting without being sensational or common, although within the bounds of proper romance, and create a set of characters, most of whom are like real people. Um, I was trying to think of a really good I was trying to like think of a good summary for this book, and it's really, really oh, difficult. Oh, you should just
1: read. There isn't I, one. So we'll I, get into there it. There isn't one. Re- read that but one. But I'm
0: going to read Gretchen Grazina's um, summary of True Love, which is a novel that tells the story of a man whose quest to marry his love, Janie, is thwarted by Janie's selfish sister and mother. Generous and beloved Janie nurses her sister through a fever only to catch it herself and die. Oh, Gretchen, spoilers. So, um, okay, we're going to talk about this book, but I will say the beginning of True Love was giving me some sense and sensibility vibes. Mm-hmm. So we had like Janie, this like sensible sister, and then Marianne, who's like a total Marianne. With and- less of Marianne's good qualities. <laughs> yeah. And I was expecting to see more of this like romance play out between Janie and charles but then she ends up dying like really really quickly and then we sort of focus on charles like on the taylor family in general there's like charles's cousin that comes in who's also always his like sister george Matilda. Taylor a cousin every time every like a five times like, is, i'm like i, I get this it This book is about george now is there a different george i yeah, um, there, are, yeah. there is
1: actually a different george because there's george the servant <laughs> yeah there is <laughs> oh my god so yeah what did you think about true love there's some nice writing in there like there's some really lovely bits and there's like the bones of an interesting plot i feel like something was happening there there is some exceptional character work and i really loved the conversations between the doctor and the vicar especially Mm -hmm. but it just bounces around so much and it felt like i was being kicked out of the story Mm -hmm. i felt like yeah. I was watching a TV series and like I was only getting to watch half the episode and all of these new characters were coming in and storylines were changing. And there were things which felt significant but then weren't, like when Cousin George, I think it was Cousin George, was in the boat with Miss Flint and it felt ominous. Yeah. And I was like, What well, what's happening with this? What's going? He- Nothing what's going on? there. hmm And you know, and like Mary Ann was so interesting. And then yeah. gone. And vanished. Never to be seen again.
0: Yeah. It's funny because um, I have these strong reactions to Marianne and her mom, Mrs. Brewster, who she set up Mrs. Brewster quite well in the beginning. Mm. I feel like Mrs. Brewster is the most well-developed character in the book. And then gone. Nothing. So a couple of things that I did want to mention um, that I found really interesting about reading True Love is that one... um, Janie doesn't just die of a fever, but she dies of the fever. So we begin True Love and everyone is in a bit of a panic because the fever has returned to the village. And it's interesting to note that Pharaoh herself lived through a scarlet fever outbreak, which accounted for over 10% of the deaths in the city of Chicago in 1877. There was also a smallpox outbreak in 1881 and a flu pandemic that killed over 1 million people worldwide between 1889 and 1890. So you can understand why the return of a fever was just so alarming. And it's very strange reading this now, of course, during COVID, because I was panicking along with Charles, like, get Jamie out of the house, get her out. Oh, God, wait, it might be too late. It's probably too late.
1: Yeah, I felt like all of the scenes and those conversations were great. Like the doctor, mm-hmm. excellent. And just all of the conversations about like how well the rooms are ventilated, get the window open. And it hit differently. Because yes. you see it in like, and also I liked your comparison to Sense and Sensibility. Because the bit where in the Emma Thompson one and Amelda Staunton runs
0: out with the baby screaming and you're like, yeah. Yeah. Get on out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like two years ago, we probably would have read something like that and gone. Not even oh, cool how, about it. how silly yeah, yeah, they used to be. Or like how, you know, oh, they didn't mm-hmm. understand. But now it's like, oof, that's terrifying. Um, one of the most interesting things about True Love is that it is deliberately set in England, um, even though that really doesn't affect the story much. Mm-hmm. Um And it's funny because I read True Love alongside Contending Forces and the Diaries of Charlotte Fortin. And all three are African-American writers from the 19th century. And all three have these like idealized visions of England that are quite interesting to read, especially alongside each other. And, And I'm sure a larger part of this was the fact that Authors like Eliot and Dickens and Thackeray were very, very popular on the side of Atlantic and serialized. And many of the papers that these gals are reading, including abolitionist and African-American newspapers. But um, in Pharaoh's case, I do think that there is an interesting element of escape, like just writing in this white world and leaving behind all of this, you know, all of the baggage of racism and escaping to England where you know slavery had been abolished in 1772 the the fact
1: it was set in England I kept getting confused because there's a reference to dollars really close to the start and then a reference to turkeys and it's At just one of those like yeah. yeah yeah and it's like those little things where like because I've like I've lived in America like you take for granted the stuff that's different or the things that you're not going to mm-hmm. know and Going back to the Harry Potter thing, I used to read Harry Potter fan fiction written by American teenagers and I would edit those bits and so it Mm -hmm. it really stood out and I'd be like, ooh, she just needs like her Brit picker because that's what you call it, a Brit picker to just read it and be like, that's a pound, this is a chicken or Mm -hmm. a goose, you know, but it it didn't take me out of it that much because again, like the background of the book is just so interesting, you know. And then there were other times where it just felt there were other times where it just felt so authentically English and England and the characters. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So yeah, hit me yeah, with those so parts. Yeah, so this
1: dual, this dual thing. So for me, mm-hmm. I think it was the Doctor and the Vicar. Okay. They felt for me, they felt like the most realised characters. The Mrs. Brewster, that name felt um is that her name? Brewster? Mm-hmm. That feels like an American name to me. But Yeah, probably, yeah um definitely the vicar and the doctor and like kind of the village community and stuff and then mm-hmm. yeah there were all of there were there are a few parts where i was just like oh this is really interesting like this feels really real mm-hmm. and then you can kind of guess like who i mean who cares about like the wrong word it doesn't matter and also because yeah. i used to do the same thing when i was in my fiction writing class where i was always trying to write as an american to trick my classmates into not knowing it was my work and mm-hmm. i'd always put the wrong words in for things so they always knew it was me. So I really relate to Seri Farrow living near Printers Row, <laughs> trying to be a British trying. person. Because I did the same thing like <laughs> ten years ago. Um, but then that point that you just made, Lauren, about this being like escapism in writing or escapism in action, that just makes me really sad. Yeah. Because um, there is no mention of, like, race or really any politics in this work. Mm-hmm. And I think that Farrow's England and the England that she is writing about uh, and the England that she discovered through the works of, like, George Eliot and Dickens, it just, it's fiction. It just, right. it's fiction. And slavery was abolished and... In the UK, we do still have this really intense and complicated relationship with slavery and just kind of accepting that, although it was abolished on British soil, that wasn't the end to it. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, and post-abolition. And I just think that like literature and the way we discuss literature now and engage with literature is not that dissimilar to the way people were engaging with literature then. Like, I think there's a lot of people who read the same books as Farrow and still think that it's true. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. big difference is hindsight and the internet people.
0: <laughs> yeah. The internet and travel. I, yeah. I think it's where we'll get into this a little bit when we discuss Charlotte Fortin, I think especially, but there is this like longing to get on a ship and go to England. Cause she's just like, it's gotta be better. It's gotta be better than what I'm experiencing mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And, I, I feel this is definitely what's going on in True Love as well. Maybe I should,
1: as well, just because I think you were surprised, maybe I should reread it and then just drop those bits that felt really English <laughs> just into a thread <laughs> on Facebook.
0: You should. I, well, I was thinking that there were a lot of things that felt very American. Yeah. In there. that's. I would love to see like what bits were what like, because what is the same
1: bits? And I'm like, I this know. is so British. <laughs>
0: Well, things like the town names, like Waterville, mm-hmm. that felt American. Oh, just quickly, these are plot things. Matilda and Berkeley. I was when when we got to Matilda and Berkeley, I was like, oh, is that the book? Yeah, and it was <laughs> interesting. It, it mm-hmm.
1: was so good. Like the whole like, and he comes back, and she's like too angry. She's like, I'm not hearing it. Like I'm, and yeah. it's just miscommunication. Loved it. You could you could remake this in the, in the COVID era and just make it more about COVID.
0: I'm actually just going to rewrite this book.
1: Also, I did really like the bit about the passages. I really enjoyed that bit. But it didn't
0: mean anything or relate not to any other part anything. of the book. There's <laughs> so. way too many characters and way too many ideas. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the book, what was the book she wanted to write? I think she just and kept think- getting like sidetracked by different things.
1: And I think why it's frustrating is so many of the ideas are great ideas. That's the mm-hmm. thing that was annoying me, where I was like, I'm interested in all of these threads, but all of these mm-hmm. threads should just be in a different tapestry.
0: Ooh, that's yeah. a good, like, yeah. So thanks again to Lydia for returning and discussing her work with us. We have more literary detective stories coming up this season. And uh, if you want to know more about those, you can follow us on the internet to learn more hannah how do the people do that where do they go
1: you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join our wonderful community for book discussions general shit talking and the occasional meme by searching bonnets at dawn and we will see you there